You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. At the start of the divers' clothes lie empty, a young woman arrives in Casablanca, and upon checking into her hotel, which is just an average tourist hotel called the Golden Tulip, her backpack is stolen. Inside her backpack is her passport, her laptop, her identity, everything that's important to her, and her money. The hotel enlists the help of a young man to take her to the police station to fill out a police report. And I'm going to start reading a passage that begins with that scene. A young man in a plaid shirt and clean sneakers has been assigned and paid by the hotel to take you to the police station. You have no idea what his affiliation is with the hotel. He's not in uniform, but he has kind eyes, the green of an old leather atlas, and you trust he will get you to where you need to go. He opens the back seat of the car for you, and you get in. You see, on the floor of the seat next to yours, a pair of leather shoes, and you wonder what they're doing there. You know Paul Bowles, the driver says, out of nowhere? Because you're staring at the old leather shoes, you think for a brief moment he's going to tell you that they belong to Paul Bowles. Yes, you say. You know who Paul Bowles is. You devoted a paragraph, or maybe even a page to him, in a college essay you wrote about post-World War II bohemians. You had no prior interest in the subject, nor any sustaining interest for that matter. You signed up for the class because the professor was intriguing to you. She was a burn victim, and two-thirds of her body was scarred, but this made her more beautiful. You weren't the only one who thought this. The class was filled with young male theater majors and aspiring poets. You were the sole athlete in the class. When you met with her in her office to discuss your mediocre essay, she obsessively rubbed a potent-smelling vitamin E lotion onto her shiny red wrists, her lavender-hued elbows. She kept a large tube of the lotion on the corner of her desk where others might place a colorful paperweight. Each time she loudly squirted the lotion onto her palm, you silently marveled at the framed photos of her swimsuit-clad children, their skin impeccably unflawed. Everyone knows Morocco because of Paul Bowles, the driver says. My father, he read for Mr. Bowles. Read for him, you ask? You are certain that Paul Bowles could read. At the end of his life, Mr. Bowles cannot see well, the man tells you. My father lives in the same building, and sometimes Mr. Bull asks neighbors to read for him, and so sometimes he asks my father. Cool, you say, because you can't think of anything else appropriate. Yes, the driver says. You are both silent again, watching the traffic not move. Ben LaVita is the author of nonfiction works that include The Believer Book of Writers Talking to Writers and Girls on the Verge and the novels And Now You Can Go, Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name, and The Lovers. Her new novel is The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty. Thank you for joining me, Ben Thank you. This is such a marvelous novel, and there are so many ways and means by which you can enjoy it. At its core, it's really a story of identity. And I, it's identity as story and as choice. You take us back to the Middle East again. Did you visit Casablanca before you wrote the novel? I did visit Casablanca. I actually went there with my husband um, to Morocco a few years ago. And 
upon checking into our hotel, uh, which is just an average tourist hotel like the one the protagonist goes to in the book, um, upon checking in, my stuff was stolen. My backpack was stolen. And I later learned by watching a surveillance camera that the hotel kept that I'd actually been set up by um, there's a ring of three thieves who all were wearing lanyards, lanyards with badges on them, um, to suggest that they were taking part in a conference that was happening at the hotel. The hotel had lots of conferences for doctors and so forth. And so because they were wearing these lanyards, they weren't suspected. But on the surveillance camera, I watched as one of the men came and took the backpack off from um, the top of my suitcase where it was sitting and walked out the door with it. I should add that even though the book starts with a scene that's very similar to the one that I experienced, the book is not autobiographical. Um, the, <laughs> the character makes some bad choices, I and I try not to make bad choices. In fiction, I like to make bad choices for my characters, but in life, I try to try to not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you lose all your identity and your laptop and all those things that the character loses? I did lose my laptop and my camera. And um, most upsetting to me was on my laptop was a novel that I had, was, had been working on and had not sufficiently backed up before my trip. So I, in fact, I lost a book with the, with the backpack theft as well. Um, but I have to say that when we were sitting with the head of police in the Casablanca police station, I had a couple of thoughts. Firstly, I was thinking this is like the movie Casablanca. I've just arrived and already I'm meeting the chief of police. Um, but secondly, I started thinking about how I had been trying to work on this book about identity and I could never find the right beginning for it. And as I was sitting there with the chief of police, I thought, wow, wouldn't this be interesting? Wouldn't this make for a good start to that novel that I haven't quite figured out how to make work yet? And I thought, what if, you know, someone came to Casablanca and their passport was stolen and they were traveling alone they had no access to money? And suddenly I became really excited. I was probably the most excited person the chief of police had ever seen sitting there. And I think my behavior definitely confused him and the detectives. <laughs> Having lost your notebook and your novel, you have found a hook into a new one. I found a hook, found a beginning. And I, so then I started paying very careful attention to everything that the chief of police and the detectives were asking me. They were asking me all sorts of very relevant questions like, what was the profession of your great great grandfather? Um, what was the name of your grandfather? I think. Basically, they were trying to assess out how important I was and if it was actually worth trying to retrieve my backpack. And I, as I realized that they were, um, they were trying to establish my importance in the in the world, I told them a lie. I said, you know, that's the thing. Sometimes you do in desperate situations. I really wanted to get my bo- my book back, my my backpack back with the laptop that had my book. So I said, you know, I'm a, a writer for the New York Times, and I really, really don't want to have to include this this unfortunate incident in my article about Casablanca, because I'm here to, you know, writing a travel piece about Casablanca. And the chief of police said, the what? And I said, the New York Times. And he said, and this is, is this a business? And I said, no, it's a newspaper. And he said, is it an important one? And I said, yes. And that, you know, so I, suddenly I realized I was not in a world that was familiar to me. And clearly my lie, my attempt, attempt to impress the chief of police and try to get him to pay attention to my the theft of my backpack uh, was not successful. How interesting. <laughs> did you ever get your backpack back? I did not, despite assurances from the chief of police in Casablanca that I, um, he was 100% confident that I would get my backpack back. He said that, I said, how, you know, how, how sure are you that I will get my backpack? And he said 100%. And I was, I was actually very impressed by that. I thought, 
maybe, you know, if he could have said 99% and just given himself that 1% bit of leeway, but he told me 100%, and um, I never did. I love the setting of this book, and, and it's uh, similar to the setting of The Lovers, that kind of these Middle Eastern desert countries have a sort of world weariness and an emptiness in them that leads us to feel that because there's not much there, even when you're in a city, there's it feels like there's not much there. Everything feels kind of cardboardy and like it's about to fall apart and just reveal just yet you're in the middle of nowhere and you have no hope for anything. And so it lends one to have both the universe crush, attempt to crush one's identity, and also one's identity to escape out into the universe at the same time. Well, thank you. Landscape and setting are very, very important to me when I'm writing. In fact, a lot of books start with the landscape first and then lead to the story. Um, in the case of The Lovers, was actually literally the landscape of these two towns in in the southwestern part of Turkey that made me think about um, two very different kinds of people. And I ended up giving the main character, Yvonne, in The Lovers, two children who were, in my own mind, kind of representative of each of the towns, that the twin towns that she that she's driving between and in fact I made her children twins so literally the landscape gave birth to the to the characters and to the story and that often happens for me you know with this story there's so much interest in identity and uh, it also has the really the feel of an existential novel I couldn't help but think of Camus the stranger uh, when I read this and Strangely enough, we are, we seem to be having there's a comeback of existentialism. There's a brand new book about the existential cafe. Oh, I've been meaning to read that. It's so <laughs> funny. It's on my list to read that book. Yeah, about Paris. And yeah, the, yeah. yeah. And I looks and fantastic. From my shattered youth back in before the dawn of time when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I remember taking a class in existentialism. And one of my favorite uh, directors at the time was a guy named Michael and. Oni, who made a a movie called The Passenger, which has a, a similar theme to to your book, and I'm wondering how much uh, did the existential themes of this just emerge from the story, or had you thought about that? Well, let me back up for a second and just say that I'm so happy you brought up Antonioni. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. And in fact, when I was writing this book, I rewatched The Passenger several times. I don't allow myself to read a lot of novels when I'm deep at work in a book because I don't want to be too influenced by them. But I do watch a lot of films. And The Passenger was one that I watched many, many times while writing this. And I'm so glad you brought him up also because there's a little hidden reference to him um, in the beginning of the book. Uh, the main character who's never given a name she's the protagonist of the book she's always you since the book is in the second person so in a sense she's everyone she's you the listener um she is thinking about a movie that starred jack nicholson and a an actress whose name she can't remember and the movie is actually supposed to be for the very very attentive or antony obsessed <laughs> antony obsessed reader and um, they'll know that the film is actually the passenger so thank you for noticing that well i i couldn't help and i it also this book reminded me a little bit of uh, one of my favorite writers from again back before in the before time uh kurt vonnegut and uh mother night where he famously said that we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful 
about what we pretend to be. And uh, that that's a great quote. <laughs> uh, it certainly seems to run through this novel. I'm going to have to write that down. <laughs> that's a great one. Well, you know, too, this is a beautiful and intense novel. And one of the things that when we meet somebody, your protagonist, when she, as did you, loses her uh, luggage and her identity, essentially, in a foreign country, that situation is very uncanny and unnerving. And immediately there's a lot of tension created in that. Did you know where you were going to take the plot from there? I didn't know exactly where I was going to take the the plot next. Um, I did think about this book more um, the way I would think about a screenplay. I've written a couple of screenplays in the past, and I thought about this book very much as having a three-act structure. So I knew the rough shape of each of the acts. I knew in the first act she would lose her her luggage. I knew in the second act she would work as a stand-in for a famous American actress who's in Casablanca at the time um, filming a movie. And in the third act, I knew... Um, it would be set in a different city, um, a city called Meknes. And I know you don't like to give a lot of plot away on your on your show, and I don't like to reveal too much plot either. So I won't say what happens, but I will say that I had in my head I had the three acts um, kind of outlined, and then I had just had to then I just write. I only just just had to write them. <laughs> just had to write that novel. Well, you did a, a hell of a job, and, and what. I loved so much about this novel is that you manage it to be very, two very different things at once. It's an intense and engaging kind of thriller about somebody who has lost everything and is has to find out what they're going to do about it. But it's also, I think, uh, a bit of a comedic farce. And what I was, what it reminded me of was how much fun uh, Shakespeare had with his comedies of mistaken identity. And the that mistaken identity lends itself to both situations that are both tense but also absurd, again, part of the existentialist uh, philosophy. Well, I wanted this book to be funny, so I'm glad that you found parts of it funny. That was my intention. There's nothing worse than setting out to write something that's funny than no one thinks it's funny. Um, but I, I... And I thought about that a lot when I was thinking about the shape of the novel because I wanted in the past I've written books that have been maybe more intense in subject matter and at a certain point they don't have the capacity to be funny when I was writing um, a novel let the northern lights erase your name I could have a lot of dark humor in the beginning of the book but that and then after a tragic event happens there's no place for humor in fact I had a sign above my a post-it note above my desk when I was working on Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name that said, this terrible thing has happened. You cannot be funny. Seriously, I said, no, you can no longer be funny. Just to remind myself that I couldn't even try to put humor in there. So I wanted um, a structure. When I set out to write The Diver's Clothes Light Empty, I knew from the very beginning I wanted a structure that would allow for humor and it had the capacity for humor. And you're right, mistaken identity is what, you know often a source of, of humor. Um, even in you know Charlie Chaplin or something, so I think that it's a, you know there are different ways that it can be comedic, but um, but I wanted the book to be funny, and I'm glad that you found it. So, oh, it, there were there were many parts that I thought were were really great, and one of the things that's interesting is that you managed to be funny and I guess um, a bit disorienting and dissonant, a little bit scary at the same time. And humor and horror are are often paired together, and. Many ways, this is, uh, uh, you know, a, 
a classic kind of there's a bit of classic horror in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but the um, times when you're kind of pulling them off both at once, I think, are really, really interesting because what happens is once you start to tell a lie, that becomes a really, really complicated process. Well, I think lies have always been intriguing to me because that's what you do as a fiction writer. You mm-hmm. lie, right? That's what you, you always do. And you know, I was a terrible liar as a kid. And then um, I re- remember being very confused because I would get in a lot of trouble for lying. But then I would go to school and I would write stories, and which were essentially just lies. And I would be rewarded for my creativity and for for creating this other, this world. So I, you know, basically at a young age, I learned that if you lie, it's a terrible thing. But if you lie and call it fiction, you, you get nice marks and nice letters home from your teacher. Um, so I, I've always been fascinated by lies. I'm also really interested in the fact that to be something, someone once said to me, it's a friend of mine when I was at grad school, I got my MFA at Columbia, and he was a he was a writer, and he was also a liar, both in his fiction and in real life. But he said <laughs> he said the thing about being a liar: a good liar has to remember their lies, mm-hmm. and that's the most important quality in being a good liar. You know, if you have to, and you have to actually work really hard to remember every lie that you told, because soon before you know it, you have this whole complicated web of a non-existent parallel life that you've created. Uh. And so I thought about that a lot when I was. Writing the diver's clothes lie empty. That you know, that to be a liar, you have to remember your lies. You have to. Uh, you said he was a, a liar, both in fiction and in, in life. And I think that that's one of the the joys of reading this book is that we see somebody um, creating their life on two tracks. You know, they're experiencing it on one hand, but and. Um, Internally, they're having an internal experience while they're at the same time creating an external um, uh, lifetime and story uh, that tracks it. So they, you know, there's a kind of schizophrenia that sets in. I tried to insert some themes of Darwinism and evolution into the book, <laughs> and I, I think that lying sometimes is a part of, you know, is Darwinistic. It's survival of the fittest. So mm-hmm. for the, in the situation, the the character finds herself. The only way that she can figure out how to keep existing is to lie. She has to lie to get her job working as a stand-in for the famous American actress. She has to remember her lie. She has to keep changing her name so the past, so the police don't find her, so the hotel doesn't find out who she is. She has to use someone else's credit card, so she has to, you know, she has to lie about who she is in that sense. So it's it's all a means to an end, though. She wants to survive. It, there's a bit of a, a Looney Tunes aspect to it in terms of just like running so fast that you can just like run across the empty air on the lies you create to get to the next lie before the last one starts to fall apart. Right, exactly. There, that is an image of, you know, there's an image of the, the cliff kind of falling behind her each, with every step that she takes. When it, you decided to create her in the second person, that's an unusual decision. I, I still remember to this day a Stanislaw Lem essay, a review of a book called Toi, where he says somebody has written, decided to write the impossible books that entire, written entirely in the second person. So I always find it really interesting when somebody decides to do that. Well, it was sort of a at fluke at first. Um, as I mentioned, my laptop was stolen when I was in Casablanca, and then I got the idea for the book when I was sitting in the, the, 
chief of police office in Casablanca. And I started writing the novel on the way home on the plane. I loved to write on planes. The problem, of course, was that I didn't have a laptop because it had been stolen and not retrieved, despite the chief of police's assurances that it would be. And so I started writing on by hand on backs of pieces of paper. And to be honest, I always prefer to start writing a book by hand because I think when you're trying to figure out the, the cadence and the rhythm and the voice of a book, it's really good to just write by hand, at least for the first few pages, to kind of figure out what your what your character's voice is. And I wrote started writing you. You do this. You arrive in Casablanca. And the fortunate thing about writing on a piece of paper as opposed to having my laptop is I think if I had my laptop, I would have erased it, that sentence. I would have started again with she or I or something more conventional or traditional. But then I looked back at what I written. I thought, oh, the you is kind of interesting. Why don't I experiment with that? And um, so I did. And I I had to study a lot of um, writings that use second person along the way. I read, we read a lot of Lori Moore's stories. Um, she likes to use the second person in her um, in her short stories. And Margaret Atwood uses the second person in some of her work. And Juno Diaz uses a second person in one of his stories. So I really had to kind of study the second person um, format. And I really, really liked it. A lot of French writers use second person as well. Um, but I noticed there was another advantage to writing the book in the second person when I got to the end of the book. And I realized that because the character switches identities so many times, by calling her you throughout the book, it frees the reader from having to keep track of all her different names. You know, sometimes when I read Russian novels, I have to keep these elaborate charts of who's who and who's related to who and whose nickname, you know, who uses what nickname, because otherwise I can't <laughs> keep track of the, the novel and I can't keep track of, track of all the characters. And so I think by using you, hopefully I freed the the reader from having to do all the work of thinking, okay, who is she now and what is her name now? And um, they could she could just be simply always be you. This also brings up too one of your fam- favorite themes. I think is uh, that of mirrors. And in when you use the second person, the main character becomes a mirror. You, the reader, becomes a mirror for the main character. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but yes, thank you. And now that you've said that, I'm going to think about that a little bit more. <laughs> There's so many interesting observations in this book. And one of the things that you say early on is that as we get little snippets, because when we walk around, we don't think of our family history. We don't think of who we are and how we got to where we are. So part of the tension in this book is discovering who you are, which is a a delightful kind of little um, uh, oxymoron, Mm -hmm. I guess. We're re. You're reading the book, and you don't know who you are. You have to discover yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, early on, you uh, describe her at home, and uh, one of the things you, you write, one of the things you observed at your all-girls school, half of parenting is a performance for others. And I never thought of parent being a parent as a performance, but I think that's so true. How old are your, how old are your kids? Uh, let's see, thirty and twenty-six. I wonder if that's that's interesting. I wonder if it's also a change in parenting that's 
happened in our culture now where I feel, you know, everyone, obviously everyone talks about this, how parenting has changed so much. And there's so much, you know, mm-hmm. even though I don't think helicopter parenting exists the same way it did even a few years ago, there is this sense that I think that people really are judgmental of other of other parents in a way that maybe they weren't when your kids were, were younger. But I do notice a lot of performative aspects to parenting. And of course, I try not to be like that, but I I remember being at the park with my kids when they were little, and I felt like so much of what the parents were saying was almost narrating what the kids were doing. <laughs> That's right, son. Share with your sister. Oh, what a good boy. You ate your applesauce. Things like that, almost like... <laughs> And I, and I felt like that was not necessarily for the kids. Those, those affirmations or those declarations and descriptions of what the kids were doing were not for the kids so much as they were for the other parents around them. And basically the subtext was, look at me. I'm a good parent. <laughs> uh, storytelling uh, as a public performance piece. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also cre- making sure that you create your identity for yourself lest someone else create it for you who is not so kindly disposed towards you. Well, that's a great point. If you're narrating, if you're the one actually doing the scene descriptions in a play, (laughs) um, then no one else can do them. You're actually in charge. So yes, you're actually, um, you're kind of putting, it's like the equivalent would be bowling or something, the analogy, you know, putting the bumpers there on the sides. The kids, you know, don't have their bowling balls run into the gutters, but you're kind of making sure that everything goes well (laughs) when you're the one actually narrating your kids' lives. Yeah, making sure that they, then then you have to remember that. Remember when you said you didn't want a car? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another, at another point, you uh, talk about um, how, uh, describe the scene in in Morocco and and, uh, you say your generation of females is missing on the street. And I think that that's a really, again, an interesting observation in that you are missing. So it brings this kind of like, uh, I guess if nature abhors a vacuum, I never even didn't even think about that till this second. This whole book is about how nature abhors a vacuum and we, the reader, pour ourselves into that book. (laughs) Interesting. Well, it was definitely based on something that I experienced when I was um, in Casablanca, and I was there with my husband. But even on the street, I would notice, I would look around and think, "There's no, there are no other women my age range." I see younger women, and I see grandmothers walking with their grandkids, but I don't see anyone like me in their forties. And I, and I was really interested in in that. Um, and thirties or forties, to be honest, there was no one. There was, I felt like that a whole generation was missing on the streets and I wanted to put that into the to the book. Another big part of this book has to do with the what's called theory of mind which is this idea that we all humans are are one of the few species who are capable of theory of mind. I think they've now discovered that chimpanzees and maybe a couple birds have kind of also figured this out in that when I'm sitting here I'm making a model of what you're thinking in my mind. Mm-hmm. Vendel is thinking, when will you ask, actually ask me a question? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then at the same time, now if you carry this to the next level, I think, well, what is she thinking of what I'm thinking of her? And there, are, you can kind of take this to a number of levels depending on how intuitive you are and, and how what your IQ is and how completely screwed up you are. <laughs> you are, but I think that you do a, play a lot with theory of mind in this book, where she's reconstructing people. There's a part where she's like, uh, 
talking about the head of security, and she says his behavior was so strange. Success suggests he was not in on the plot. And I guess you had those, some of those same thoughts yourself. I did have some of those thoughts. I, in retrospect, I do think that the the hotel was involved in the theft of my backpack, if I can say that. Um, but I, I could tell the head of security actually probably had nothing to do with it. But it was probably had more to do with the people at the front desk because there was lots of commotion when I first got to the front desk, and there was there. Were papers weren't ready and the room wasn't ready and I also realized my other mistake was before the trip to Casablanca I bought a really nondescript black backpack and I thought this is the perfect thing to bring to um, Casablanca I can zip it all the way up it's nondescript just looks like any black black backpack that any school kid or you know adult might carry and in retrospect I realized that was a mistake because what that enabled the thief to do was to just take the black backpack as his own and walk out of the hotel quickly, but still with it slung over one shoulder without arousing any attention. Now, if I had brought a fluorescent knockoff Hermes bag with lots of chains or you know things dangling <laughs> from it, it would not have been as easy for him to to take it. One of the uh, things that I think is interesting is the. Using the way you write, using uh, character revelation as plot, one of the greatest tension generators in this book is figuring out who you are. Mm -hmm. And how did you pace those revelations? You don't have to tell us what they are, but I think that that they're really important, and they add a really a, a a beautifully orchestrated emotional heft to this book. Well, thank you. I actually did not know what the character's history was. I did not know what she was running away from until later in the book. I knew she was running away from something really terrible that had happened in her past, and I knew I wanted to give the reader some clues early on, but it wasn't until I was I was almost done with the draft when it occurred to me what terrible misfortune had befallen her before her trip. And then there was an interesting situation where I had to go back and want to start planting the clues so that the reader might, you know, could eventually look back and, and put them all together. And, and planting clues is actually really challenging because sometimes, you know, I planted one clue that I thought was very discreet, but one of my early readers, uh, a novelist friend of mine, Sarah Stewart Taylor, she read it and she said when she saw this clue on page 45, she knew it. She knew everything that had happened. So I had to think, okay, now I have to <laughs> back off on that clue. And then I would plant another clue, and someone else would say that it was too subtle. So you have to be – it was an interesting experience for me to have to you know, learn kind of how, how subtle or, or obvious you can be with the clues that you plant. You had to retcon your own novel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, sounds, uh, that sounds challenging. Now – about the humor, and I think we can talk about this, the the kind of situation she finds herself in, they're natural, but there's, there are so many layers. She so quickly builds up so many layers of identity that they're just absurd, and they're, they're pretty funny. But what we also realize reading this is that everybody does that. Right. Well, that's what I think is so interesting about having characters who arrive in a new country. I'm very guilty of setting um, setting books in other countries, one, because I, I love books set in other countries. But um, secondly, because I think there's something so interesting about someone who goes on a journey and arrives somewhere where they're not known by anyone else. And it, I always think about how much we're defined by the people around us. So here in San Francisco, I'm 
you know, a wife, mother, friend, fellow parent, all these different identities, writer, editor, different identities that are assigned to me. The second I go on a plane, especially if I'm traveling by myself and the doors close, I can be anybody. I can turn to the person next to me and tell them I am a scientist. I can arrive in another country and completely be undefined by any of my previous identities because no one there knows who I am. So I've always been interested in that aspect of travel and in stories that take people to new destinations. The new destination your character goes to is actually a new person. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. She goes to Morocco physically, but then she also becomes a new person. And I think that that, uh, I I love the scenes where she's taking on and checking out her new identity. And I have to wonder, did you ever find like somebody else's identity or, you know, like a wallet or something and have to return it to them? Uh, that is a really good question because there was uh, there was a, a, um, a time when I was 10. I remember I was with my parents and we were in Lake Tahoe and my dad and I found a, a wallet in a shopping cart. It just had been left there in a shopping cart in a grocery store. And so we tracked down the address of the person with someone who lived locally in, in the Lake Tahoe area. And we drove quite a while to get to their house, I think half an hour or so. And when we get got there, my dad said, you know, Run up there, I'm sure they're going to give you a reward. Actually, you've been saying that the whole time. He said, I'm sure they're going to give you a reward when you return their wallet because they'll be so happy. So, you know, as a 10-year-old who's always counting and wanting to <laughs> buy things with my allowance money, I thought, oh, gosh, I wonder how big the award will be. I wonder if it will be $10 or, do you, you know, it will be more than that. I think there's kind of a large amount of money in the wallet, so I thought maybe there's a percentage. Maybe, maybe there's $90 in the wallet, so I thought maybe... Nine dollars. Maybe the, you know, what will be the percentage, <laughs> or twenty percent? And then I, we arrived at the house, and I walked up the stairs and knocked on the door and retrieved the um, and returned the wallet. And the woman who received it, she seemed thankful, but almost as like an afterthought, as though I just you know brought a newspaper that had been laying on the front doorstep. And and I remember being waiting for my reward. She didn't give me one. She just said thank you and closed the door. And I walked down to down the steps and back to the car, so defeated. And my father said, "You know, what did she what did she say?" And he, I said, "She just said thank you." And he said, "That's it." And I said, "That's it." And we both drove back, kind of in silence, very disappointed that <laughs> we had not been further rewarded for our long drive and our and, and not been rewarded for actually returning a wallet, which we could have kept and could have kept the cash. Um, yeah, well, I mean, gosh. Who cares about the cash these days? <laughs> right. As your character experiences, it's not just it's not the cash so much; it's the loss of the identity, and that it's interesting to read this book and realize just how much of our lives and our identity resides in such a small space, and how the loss of that is so upsetting and so disjointing, disorienting to us. When you if you lose your you know, your driver's license and your credit cards, it just seems like there's a world of work and torment that you just I cannot possibly get around. Right. There's so much, with the loss of identity or credit card, it is funny how people get so upset because they're still them, right? They haven't lost their identity or who their true selves are, but they've lost any physical manifestation of that identity. And I think that's what's so painful is like if you don't exist on paper, you know, if you don't have your proof of who you are, then who are you? Right, and you're you're essentially powerless too. If you're, especially if you're in a place where you, you can't easily reach anybody who who knows you, 
and you, or you don't want to reach anybody who knows you, then you are left with little choice of what you can do. Little choice. And that's also I wanted to make sure the protagonist was traveling on her own. And in my situation, I was fortunate. It was when my stuff was stolen when I was in Casablanca. I was traveling with my husband so we could use – we had to be careful not to cancel um, – the bank card that we shared so we could still use, you know, get money out. And, but I still had someone who could, you know, check into the hotel for me or whatnot. But I wanted to make sure that this character had no resources and she really had to figure out what she was going to do when she had no money, no identity, nothing. I love the ease with which she makes decisions that are of dubious morality and that Mm -hmm. the more decisions of that nature she makes, the easier they become. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, again, it's this, this, this Darwinistic exploration of how when you have to survive, you will do whatever it takes to make sure that you, you get what you want. In this case, she needs to check into a new hotel because she doesn't feel safe in the one that she's been robbed at. So she, when she's given the opportunity um, to take someone else's path, she's actually given someone else's wallet, she free, readily embraces the possibility of checking into another hotel and using that person's credit card. And you used the word survival, and you had mentioned the, the influence of Darwin, and uh, this is all. This book is all about the survival of the fittest. And so uh, you have an interesting notion of, of about evolution. So explain what that notion about of evolution is. So when I was writing this book, I became obsessed with the idea of radical evolution, and basically, you know, gone for hours about radical evolution, but the, the short definition of it for anyone who, who's not familiar with it is that the concept that a species has to adjust when their physical environment changes. And so if a bird, for example, is used to making a nest or finding food in a particular kind of tree, and then that tree grows extinct or um, alters in any way, then they have to, the bird has to adjust to laying eggs in a higher, you know, a taller tree. And so basically they're forced to maybe grow larger wingspans or in some way adjust to the new environment. And so I wanted to use this as a metaphor for the character's evolution in the diver's clothes lie empty. And so, again, you have to be very careful with how you introduce the themes that you that you, you want the reader to come away with. So I, I made sure that it wasn't the character talking about radical evolution, but rather it was a bodyguard of a famous American actress who she starts working for um, in Casablanca who is obsessed with turtles and with radical evolution. And so he introduces the theme. And that way, ideally, the reader can later on, you know, kind of see that this is a theme and see that the author is actually maybe in some way referring to what the character is going through as well. It's also known as punctuated equilibrium. Punctuated equilibrium, exactly. He says. And and I think that this is something, what's important and interesting about this is that we all experience punctuated equilibrium a lot more often than we'd care to admit. And the ability to understand both what it is and and live in those shoes as we do in this book. This is a, this is a book in itself is a, a evolutionary aid. <laughs> Helping us evolve into it. Uh, well, if I did have fun with trying to um, show how she is evolving. And I know you don't like to talk about endings or reveal any plots, but I will say there's a scene where she's dresses in an outfit that um, is reminiscent of the same colors the, the 
of bird species that the, the bodyguard is talking about when he's describing punctuated equilibrium to her. So that's my subtle way of showing that she <laughs> has changed. And I showed it to an early to a reader early on, and I said, is this too obvious? Is this metaphor too obvious? And the reader said, clearly not, because I have no idea what you're talking about. So again, it was a situation where I had to go back, similar to the situation I, you know, I had with planting clues, where I had to make sure that I... I kind of amped up the volume a little bit on it to make sure it might resonate. And even if it didn't resonate with every single reader, um, sometimes I think if just 10% of readers get your inside joke or get your reference, then that's all you need to reach. Well, a lot of times, too, it uh, these things happen under the hood, so to speak, mm-hmm. for, for readers. And I think you have a, so much fun with our, uh, with our heroine and her actress, uh, do do you know? Have you had much experience with Hollywood? I know you guys made one movie, and I think there's another one coming out, even as we speak. Uh, my husband and I wrote a screenplay for Away We Go, which Sam Mendes directed, and I was on set a couple days for for that film. I can't say that any of the experience that I experiences that the character has in the book in any way related to that film because there were no stand-ins on that movie. But one thing I did learn from working on that film and being on set the few days that I was is how hard you have to work when creating an artificial setting to make it look real. And what I mean by that is I remember there was one scene toward the end of Away We Go, um, stars John Krasinski and Maya Rudolph, in which Maya Rudolph's character is sitting in a garden, and she's sitting in front of a real bush. But I remember Sam Mendes at one point said, you know, we have to have some wind on the bush because green can look fake. If you're not careful, actual real, you know, real bushes can look fake when there's no wind. So someone had to come out and I think, you know, have either a big fan or, and he was right, because on the screen, I could see on the monitor, it did look fake. It looked like it was a plastic bush. And so I was so intrigued by the idea that making sure that something that's real doesn't look artificial when you're creating an artificial world. And so I um, I tried to incorporate some of that play between artifice and, and reality in the diver's clothes lie empty. Well, I think that once again, it's so much fun to just immerse ourselves in these sequential one identity after another. And it's not um, that one necessarily gets dropped behind and left behind. It's more that they're telescoping into one another and you're waiting for any moment for her to snap all the way back mm-hmm. to to herself and I like that image that's a good one yeah. <laughs> but uh with regards to the actress I mean right there you also have a, ca- a problem of being careful what you pretend to be because that is what you might become as what you might become exactly so she the protagonist starts working as a stand-in for this famous American actress who needs a stand-in because she's so recognizable that on the streets um, if someone if word got out for example that she was filming on the streets of Casablanca within minutes there might be a mob scene because of Twitter and because of people calling their friends they'd say oh this famous American actress is on the street right here in Casablanca so the advantage of having a stand-in like the protagonist, who is unrecognizable to people, is an unknown to people and unknown to herself in some ways, um, is that when people see her on the street and they see a film crew, they'll just walk on by because they won't think anything exceptionally interesting is happening. But what is interesting about the character who, you know, she becomes a stand-in for the famous American actress, but soon the famous American actress, 
whose name is never revealed because she's not a real person. She's a famous American actress. I only reveal the names of people who are real people. Um, and, and the famous American actress isn't actually an authentic real person um, in the book. But she get, the actress gets so accustomed to having the protagonist work as a stand-in for her onset that soon she wants the protagonist to be a stand-in for her offset as well. And she she asks her, and then slightly with some blackmail overtones because she knows that she her real identity and knows she's not who she says she is she um asks her to go on a date with her uh, a man that she's been seeing a russian businessman so the famous american actress doesn't want to see the famous businessman who's flown to casablanca to take her to dinner so she sends the protagonist her stand-in in her place you know there's these scenes are are really fun and they're they're, but they're also very tense. And you said something that I think was really interesting. It was that um, this character doesn't know herself. And these states of punctuated equilibrium are moments when all of a sudden we find aspects of ourselves we did not know to exist or depths to which we will sink, which we are happy to sink to <laughs> because we need to. Right. <laughs> well, I think going back to parenting, too, I think that's what a lot of people are so surprised by when they become parents because of something they didn't know how to do before, but they adapt very quickly <laughs> to their to their newborn and to, a, you know, to an identity that they did not have, you know, before and had not, you know, there no, as many parenting books as you read, nothing prepares you for for that punctuated equilibrium. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's generally punctuated late at night when you're exactly. attempting to sleep. Exactly. And have that happen a few times and you will lose any equilibrium you've ever had. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> ever had. Uh, there's a, you mentioned that this was, you know, influenced by a, a movie and the writing in a sense was influenced by your work on the movies. And I think that there's a a really nice terseness to this that uh, gives us the feel in some ways of a movie because you can read this book pretty quickly. But I think one of the powers of reading is that something like this will stick with you so much longer than a movie because you immer- because as a reader, you have we be have to become this book. Well, I think there are choices that writers can make when they're when they're creating a book, and one of those choices is how they want the book to be read. Uh, for example, I recently read um, All the Light We Cannot See. I read it last year, I believe, and and I was really impressed with how the author uses very short chapters. He has very short chapters, and that's you know instructing the, the reader. To, I think actually it results in a very fast read for such a long book because you just keep thinking to yourself, oh, I'll just read one more chapter, I'll read one more chapter, and then I'll go to sleep or I'll keep reading. And I read that book, All the Light We Cannot See, very quickly. But with this book, with The Diary's Closed Light Empty, I wanted the reader to have the experience, much like watching a film, I wanted them to read it ideally in one sitting. And so I didn't insert any chapter breaks because I wanted the reader to feel that they were just on this roller coaster ride with the character. And so that's something that's always been interesting to me is how much the the writer can kind of guide how they want their book to be read. Are you working on a new book or a new movie? I am working on trying to get the 
movie of Let the Northern Lights Erase Your Name made. Um, I've written the script, and I'm working with a with a first-time German director, and we're trying to make that into a into a film. And in terms of a book, I'm working on something that I am hoping will turn into a book. I don't want to say, I don't want to jinx it. I get very, <laughs> I'm not a superstitious person, but I get superstitious about talking about books. Well, I think that's that's wise. My experience is, is that something talked about tends to not be done, especially in the literary realm. Right. Or if you talk it out too much and yeah. people don't seem very interested, it, almost, it diffuses your own enthusiasm for it. Right. Yeah. Letting off the scene. You need to keep up the pressure. It's like an espresso maker. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And you need to take, sometimes take little breaks till the red light comes on again. You can ride again. Exactly. <laughs> I've been speaking with Ben Levita. Her new novel is The Diver's Clothes Lie Empty. Thank you for joining me, Vendela. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.